Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. What I'm doing today is continuing my reading of the ebook report that I prepared on the events of the mass casualty of April 18th and 19th, 2020, and then the uh, Mass Casualty Commission, which examined those events. And the book is called uh, Deficits of Trust. And I'm reading today from part three, which is entitled Traumatically Misinformed, the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission. So this is part three of the book. There's an introduction in three parts. So this is the final section of the book. And uh, the first section of part three is called Calls for an Inquiry. I had been following events closely in the immediate aftermath of the shootings and felt I had a unique vantage point given my involvement in the then ongoing Desmond inquiry. I was seeing some parallels in the reactions of the provincial and federal governments to the events themselves and the calls for an inquiry. Both cases involved mixed federal and provincial jurisdictional responsibility with the majority of issues falling under the province's responsibility. In both cases, the Premier of Nova Scotia, Stephen McNeil, as well as Justice Minister Mark Fury, initially rejected calls for an inquiry and attempted to push the responsibility onto the federal government. People may not recall that the minister never did actually agree to an inquiry after the Desmond tragedy. It was the province's chief medical examiner, Dr. Matthew Bowes, who used his authority under the Fatality Investigations Act to force the provincial government to call an inquiry into the Desmond matter. On June 4, 2020, Minister Fury said he and Public Safety Minister Bill Blair had agreed to a, on a broad joint provincial-federal review of the tragedy and that details of what the review would look like would be released to the public the following week. That did not happen. Reasonable members of the public may have thought that the government had agreed to a public inquiry, but I had noticed that Minister Fury and the Premier had not actually called the proposed review a public inquiry. Nor had the Minister been clear on whether the RCMP or the Nova Scotia government would be forced to turn over all relevant documents under the terms of the review. Between April and June 2020, the provincial government did not publicly commit to one form of probe over another, leaving open all possibilities, including an inquiry. More than 30 Schulich School of Law faculty members signed a letter on May 15, 2020, urging the province to initiate a public inquiry into the shootings. The shootings were a major event and calls for an inquiry were coming from many sources. As difficult as it is to see such suffering in others, like many around the time of the tragedy and since, I felt compelled to read the articles and learn what I can about the community of Portapique and the people involved in the horrific killings. There is something deeply human about being a witness to, to the sadness and pain and to share the burden of this suffering. This is normally done in a collective way through organized memorials and informal gatherings. That helps us all collectively process what has taken place. In the times of isolation, when even funerals had to be skipped or limited, processing this tragedy took on a different character, much of it through online contact which is better than nothing, but lacks the energy that in-person gatherings generate. In the Desmond Inquiry, we learned that for post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers, the most effective treatment is some form of exposure therapy. 
you need to delve into the content and face it head on in order to be able to limit the persistence of the memories or at least properly live with the trauma they engender. This mass shooting was traumatic for many people, whether directly or indirectly affected. It shook the foundation of what we consider our state of general public safety to be. For Nova Scotians collectively to process what has taken place, it was important that the public be told the truth in a fulsome manner. That was to be our exposure therapy. We needed to know what the police and others knew and did as events unfolded. We needed this so that we could collectively reflect upon and process what took place throughout this whole traumatic situation, and also so that we might contribute constructive suggestions. It was important for the public to engage with the stories of courage that emerged from this tragedy as well. There are brave and wonderful people among us, setting examples we would do well to follow. We could see ourselves in these ordinary people who, are, who faced such extraordinary situations with courage. Part of what we have learned about PTSD in the Desmond Inquiry is that for the best results, you need to address the trauma as soon as possible. When people initially started to push for a public inquiry into these proceedings, <clears throat> I was concerned that this would give cover to some to withhold critical and especially damaging information about the killings. Unfortunately, this did indeed come to pass with the RCMP in particular withholding information, refusing to answer media inquiries, and fighting very hard in provincial court to keep information sealed that was all, presumably, going to emerge in the months to follow during the inquiry. It is not the kind of approach that inspires confidence or trust. While an inquiry is a good way to do a thorough review of a complex scenario, the possibility of an inquiry did not need to preclude early public disclosure. In fact, it should have accelerated it. On June 21st, 2020, uh, I did an interview with Andrew Rankin from the Chronicle Herald, and I said that Justice Minister Fury's refusal to commit to a public inquiry raised questions about whether the retired RCMP sergeant was more interested in protecting the national force than getting to the bottom of the tragedy. His reluctance in the face of overwhelming public opinion made people question why a former officer of the RCMP was making these decisions. The review announced by Ministers Fury and former Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair, notably the Federal Public Safety Minister, was the Federal Point person, not the Justice Minister, on July 23, 2020, had a very weak mandate. It could not make binding recommendations to government had no, and had no power to compel witnesses, subpoena evidence, or challenge any organization that refused to provide information. There was an immediate backlash. I said at the time that the provincial government's refusal to take responsibility for the tragedy was unfair, particularly to the families of the 22 victims. So too was the Premier and Justice Minister's reluctance to define exactly what the review mandate would be. I said those families most affected, and indeed all Nova Scotians, had a right to expect their government to take swift action in response to the deadliest mass shooting in Canadian history. That they continued to deflect responsibility was very troubling to watch for these people, those people emotionally invested in this tragedy. Instead of a dedicated effort to find answers, what they were seeing was the back and forth of our governments trying to push responsibility onto somebody else rather than showing leadership. The RCMP was already facing heavy criticism for providing limited details of the actual event itself. 
I believed that the RCMP would have been forced into being more transparent in those initial weeks and months if the province had committed to a public inquiry at an early stage. Knowing that the facts would eventually emerge in, a, in full in a public inquiry setting may have precluded what we had been seeing with the slow process of disclosing the information to obtain relating to the searches of the Portapec killer's properties. The heavily redacted search warrants that were the subject of that pre-inquiry process suggested to me that the RCMP was pressuring the Crown to hold back a considerable amount of evidence that should have been public at that stage, which was a few months after the shootings. If the RCMP knew an inquiry was coming, perhaps it would have taken a different approach from the beginning. When the Mass Casualty Commission was finally announced, it was only after protests from the family and pressure from the public. The governments only called it when there was overwhelming political pressure to do so. There were three things I had expected we would learn in the MCC process. One was certainly going to be how Nova Scotia is and should be policed. Second was going to deal with the emergency alert system and how that should be used during an active shooter incident. The third thing I thought we should learn is how effective the trauma-informed approach that the MCC was planning to take would be. What that should have meant was supports for witnesses and loved ones of the deceased while still allowing tough questions to be asked in open court. There was no guarantee that the commissioners would agree. The orders in council did not define the term very precisely, and the MCC had not been particularly clear on what they intended this to mean. As the MCC unfolded, we learned that the definition of trauma-informed could be stretched well beyond its previously agreed-upon meaning to a point that significantly undermined the entire MCC project. A Political Undertaking with legal processes. An inquiry such as the MCC is an inherently political process, meant to provide political advice to the provincial and federal governments. The stark contrasts between how the Desmond inquiry has unfolded and how the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings started brought me back to the opening remarks of the Desmond inquiry presiding judge, Provincial Court Judge Warren Zimmer. In his remarks, Judge Zimmer touched on the distinctions between a fatality inquiry and a public inquiry, and some of those remarks are helpful for understanding what has now taken place in the MCC. In particular, these remarks can help us understand how the legal nature of the Commission not only allowed for, but indeed invited, appropriate political engagement or even interference. Recall again that the Desmond Inquiry was not voluntarily initiated by the provincial government despite pressures from the Desmond family, community leaders, and veterans across the country. Rather, the Minister of Justice was obligated by the relevant legislation to do so once the Chief Medical Examiner recommended to him that one be held. That legislation, the Fatalities Investigations Act of Nova Scotia, then states that the Chief Judge of the Provincial Court appoints a judge from the court to preside over the inquiry. When the inquiry is completed, Judge Zimmer will file his report with the provincial court, not the government, and the report is presumptively a public document. The government has no legal authority to prematurely end a fatality inquiry, and at all times, Judge Zimmer maintained his judicial independence from government. By contrast, the Mass Casualty Commission was created by an order in council, that is, an order from the provincial and federal cabinets. 
and the executive, the premier, appointed the commissioners. The report to be prepared by the commissioners is submitted to the governor and council, the provincial and federal cabinets, and will only be released publicly at their discretion. The Mass Casualty Commission is, therefore, merely a creature of the order in council. It is not independent from government, nor is it designed to be independent in that sense. If the government did not like the direction taken by the commission or the commission's interpretation of the order in council, then the government could always make changes. They could have amended the order in council to clarify any areas where they felt the commissioners had misinterpreted the order or otherwise had gone astray from the intentions of the order, and they could have even cancelled the entire process at any stage should they have decided to do so, as was done federally in the Somalia inquiry. On the first day of hearings from the Mass Casualty Commission, Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston and Nova Scotia's representative in the federal cabinet, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, each expressed concern and criticism for the apparent reluctance of the commission to provide the families and other participants with procedural certainty when it came to the calling of witnesses and related issues. Some were critical of these remarks being made at all, considering them to be inappropriate political interference. That day, Commissioner and former Nova Scotia Chief Justice uh, McDonald, in his opening remarks, emphasized what he con that he considered himself and the Commission to be independent of government. While Commissioner McDonald may have been trying to convey a sense that the Commission would not shy away from difficult evidence or conclusions, in an important sense, what he said was not accurate. The Commission is entirely a creature of the federal and provincial cabinets, reports to them, and could be cancelled by them at any time, even now that proceedings have been completed. Unlike a sitting judge, the commissioners have no legal guarantees of their ultimate independence. In thinking about whether it may have been appropriate for the government to interfere in the commission, consider that the commission was initiated by the previous provincial liberal government under the direction of then Minister Justice Minister Mark Fury and then Liberal Federal Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. These ministers initially wanted merely a review to take place and only agreed to call an inquiry after being confronted with overwhelming public pressure to do so. The limited scope and disorienting presentation of evidence, coupled with the tightly controlled access to information in the commission process, gave it the look and sense of a review rather than pure inquiry process. For the most part, we have only heard the Commission's unchallenged version of events, and it seems as though their recommendations have been predetermined. It has not been like the Desmond Inquiry, where all evidence was provided to the parties in advance and cross-examination of witnesses was routinely featured throughout. Should the new provincial government have determined that the MCC was not fulfilling its mandate, or was misinterpreting the direction given in the order in council, it could have intervened. Given the comments from Minister Fraser, it may have been expected that the federal government would have supported such an intervention. Practically speaking, now that the proceedings have been completed and much of the budgeted funds have been spent, several times it would seem, it certainly does not make sense to put a stop to the work. It would have been good, however, to have seen more political engagement throughout in what is inherently a political exercise. The Commissioners. The Mass Casualty Commission is being led by three commissioners who have very important duties to fulfill.
they directed the preparation work for the proceedings, presided over the proceedings, and will now write a report including recommendations now that the hearings are complete. It is unusual for there to be three commissioners appointed for an inquiry. Other recent Nova Scotia examples such as the Desmond Inquiry, the Hyde Inquiry, and the Nunn Commission have all had only one commissioner. Only the Marshall Inquiry has in, in the Marshall Inquiry has there been more than one, though in other jurisdictions and federally there are other examples. The fact that there are three commissioners in the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings can be explained at least in part by the evolution of the inquiry from first being structured simply as a review before public pressure forced the governments to amend the terms of reference to make it a full public inquiry. When that happened, I suspect the governments were concerned that if they reduced the number of commissioners, that it would be misperceived as creating a smaller inquiry when they were otherwise trying to show that they got the message from the public and were expanding the scope and scale of the inquiry. If this had been a review as originally structured, three experienced and independent sets of eyes with somewhat distinct viewpoints would be a clear improvement over having one person. In the same way that courts of appeal have three or five justices, and the Supreme Court of Canada has nine for the most important cases, allowing for dissenting voices and more nuanced analysis, the importance of the subject matter of the review justified having at least a three-person panel. When it became a more fulsome public inquiry, it still seemed useful to have three rather than one commissioner. The three commissioners have different backgrounds, which could lead to some task specialization or perhaps to them reaching entirely different conclusions. Though he is technically no longer a judge, I expected and observed that former Chief Justice Michael McDonald would be the most comfortable handling much of the presiding duties involved in the hearings. In some ways, a judge is like the MC of a wedding reception, getting things to start on time, welcoming the participants, and ensuring the right people are at the, at the microphone. With his time at the Court of Appeal, he would also have experience including his fellow commissioners in discussions and other parts of the proceedings. Commissioner Leanne Fitch is the former chief of the Fredericton Police and has been a police management consultant for some time. Police tactics and organizational structure issues are her forte, though she also appears to have fairly extensive experience in the field of intimate partner violence. That is a topic that was covered extensively in the commission proceedings. Finally, we have Dr. Kim Stanton, who is a lawyer based out of Toronto and the former head of LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, which has been a participant in the MCC. She has some experience as an adjudicator, according to her law firm biography, and has published and worked in the fields of violence against Aboriginal women and gender-based violence more generally. While all commissioners will be conscious of acting in a manner that is trauma-informed, Dr. Stanton seemed to have the more highly developed notions of what that might mean in practice. Just before being appointed as one of the three commissioners to the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission, Dr. Stanton finished writing a book on inquiries called Reconciling Truths, Reimagining Public Inquiries in Canada, which is available for $90 through the University of British Columbia Press. There are several themes and lessons the MCC might have been wise to draw from this work, which might have helped it fulfill its mandate and increased the level of public trust in the commission. Unfortunately, many of these lessons went unheeded. 
The book is close to 400 pages total, but only about 200 of those constitute the main content of the work, the rest being appendices and references. Much of the work focuses on Canadian inquiries or truth commissions, which have attempted to analyze historical and ongoing tensions in the relationship between Canadian governments and Aboriginal peoples. In the epilogue, she notes that she was appointed to the MCC as she was finishing her edits on the book and writes that after she is in her new role, she will likely have more compassion for the other commissioners she has critiqued. She also, to her credit, recognizes that as an inquiry commissioner, she now has a vested interest in her own theories on inquiries. Reconciling Truths is an attempt to put Canadian First Nations relations and inquiries in context vis-a-vis -vis the historical and international development of truth commissions. So it is not specifically relevant for the MCC. It does, however, hold important clues to Commissioner Stanton's thinking on inquiries and thus perhaps her influence over MCC developments. The book focuses on several Canadian case studies and connects them to truth commissions in El Salvador, Australia, Argentina, Argentina Bolivia, Germany, Nepal, Peru, South Africa, Uganda, the United States, and Zimbabwe. The main Canadian case studies discussed were the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline Inquiry, 1977, the Manitoba Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, 1991, the BC Missing Women's Inquiry, 2012, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, 1995, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, 2015, and the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, 2019. The main thesis of Stanton's book is that despite their problems, inquiries or truth commissions can be a valuable public policy tool, but that this potential utility depends mainly on the effectiveness of its leadership and the process used by the commission. She says that commissioners' interpretation of their mandate is one of the critical factors in whether an inquiry fulfills its social function. She also seeks to define best practices in truth commissions, which, in her view, are a subset of public inquiries. Such truth commissions are meant to deal with patterns of human rights violations and are usually employed by countries that are emerging from an authoritarian regime into a nascent democracy and need some, some legal mechanism to help search for accountability without sacrificing the emerging democratic structure. Stanton notes that truth commissions are more adept than trials at advancing restorative justice goals such as acknowledging the suffering of victims. Looking at the factors for success Stanton identifies for truth commissions certainly brings to mind some of the shortcomings of the Mass Casualty Commission. Dr. Stanton advises that to succeed a commission must be led by someone with vision, courage and compassion who can command the attention of the public. In terms of process, she says it must engage the broader community, create knowledge and understanding well before the final report is issued, have a clear media strategy, engage the public, hold public hearings that are not lawyer-driven, use the first language of the witnesses, have different kinds of hearings, provide opportunities for civil society engagement, welcome independent research, and make clear that all evidence it hears will be valued. Stanton also recommended that a commissioner start the Commission start their hearings with those most directly affected, so as to ground the work of the Commissioner. In the MCC, we have only heard from one resident of Portapique around about their experiences 
in the community, and that was simply to identify the gate in the blueberry field. We also heard from Richard Ellison, but his contribution was focused on the Onslow-Belmont fire hall situation. Upon reading Commissioner Stanton's book on inquiries, it would seem that the main conflict with the MCC might be a fundamental misunderstanding of what kind of inquiry this was supposed to be. Non-lawyer-driven proceedings, where we just listen respectfully and uncritically to everyone's truth, may work well in a setting where the facts of human rights abuse patterns have already been established. It does not work as well when facts are being sought in the face of powerful, obstructive institutions with their survivals on the line. It is possible that Commissioner Stanton views the MCC as victim-centered when its most prominent character should have been analyzing the response and capacities of our emergency response stakeholders. The fact that Ms. Stanton had a book on inquiries coming out just as she was about to help preside over one was not a legal conflict problem. It may come to be that her idea of how an inquiry should operate on a trauma-informed basis with principles of reconciliation at the forefront will one day be seen as an effective way of addressing these major public issues. The problem was that she had a personal interest at stake in the outcome, in the sense of the procedure she advocated had to be seen to work. That may have helped lead to a situation where she compelled her fellow commissioners to unreasonably stick to a certain planned methodology, regardless of whether it fit the circumstances or seemed to be effective as the proceedings unfolded. A comparison of these commissioners to those appointed to head other recent inquiries also raised an issue that connects with the foundational documents which were developed by the MCC lawyers, theoretically at least, along with the lawyers for the parties over the course of five weeks of closed-door meetings. These foundational documents were designed to put agreed-upon facts or narratives before the Commission without the need of having anyone testify about them. That approach makes good sense for things like maps of the Portapic area, call log times, or authentication of photos or videos. It does not work for disputed eyewitness testimony. Previous commissioners, including current Desmond Inquiry Commissioner Judge Zimmer, have been sitting trial-level level judges who are used to dealing with conflicting evidence and resolving factual disputes. With former Chief Justice MacDonald, Chief Fitch, and Dr. Stanton, we do not have that skill set or comfort level. As we saw throughout the MCC, the commissioners were not particularly nimble with their comments. They very rarely spoke without reading from pre-written scripts. All, this all led to a situation where most of the narrative was included in the foundational documents and less of it unfolded through live, sometimes unpredictable, testimony on the stand where witnesses could have their accounts challenged. The commissioners leaned too heavily on the foundational documents and thereby relieved many police officers and supervisors of the burden of being cross-examined. That was the, a major disservice to the people affected and has greatly undermined the work of the Commission. The Elasticity of Trauma-Informed There are seven sections in the matching federal and provincial orders in Council which established the Mass Casualty Commission and gave it a mandate. The orders set out a list of issues to be explored, set deadlines, gave the commissioners power to enact procedures, and they also gave directions that the whole enterprise be 
guided by restorative principles in order to do no further harm, be trauma-informed, and be attentive to the needs of and impacts on those most directly affected and harmed. For many, it may be unclear what, if any, legal effect those words may have. Restorative justice is a still-developing but increasingly familiar concept in Canadian law. It emerges mainly from Aboriginal concepts of justice, where both the offender and the relationship between the offender and the victim or community are seen as things in need of healing and restoration. This is either in addition to or instead of punitive measures. In lower-level criminal matters, this can involve the perpetrator engaging in counselling, writing an apology letter, or making a financial donation to an appropriate charity. Evidently, as I will review later, it can also involve giving evidence at a public inquiry. It is less clear what all that might mean in an inquiry context. We have a very recent example of an inquiry that was explicitly restorative, the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children Restorative Inquiry. In that inquiry, there was very much a collaborative approach to the process and the resulting reports, with meetings rather than hearings, and no judge sitting as a commissioner, but rather a non-judicial team. That restorative inquiry was focused more on having the team involved in it strengthen relationships among relevant stakeholders and build community capacity, rather than a more traditional outcome of having a commissioner deliver a report to government dealing directly with uh, policies for public agencies. In that sense, the process itself was part of the outcome. And for parts of the MCC mandate, such a, an approach may have had merit. Where the MCC is tasked with identifying contextual factors such as police training and procedures on intimate partner violence and supports available to the community and first responders, then meetings and roundtable discussions may have been more appropriate than having individual witnesses be cross-examined. For the initial portion, however, where the MCC was scheduled to examine what happened, the more familiar scenario of witnesses on the stand being challenged under oath was the only reliable way to have proceeded. The best evidence in any case can only properly emerge if it is dealt with in a precise and adversarial manner. Any relationship rebuilding between the police and the communities affected needed to come after the truth of what happened became known. The MCC must have known that they would face a public backlash if they tried to extend the restorative approach into highly contested factual findings. Restorative principles cannot get in the way of basic fact-finding, even if those facts are unpleasant. The second part of that guiding directive was for the MCC to be trauma-informed. There are concrete steps the MCC could have taken in this regard, but again, it should not have prevented any topic from being explored no matter how difficult the subject matter, so long as it was relevant to something the MCC had to determine. Somewhat surprisingly, this became the much more controversial of the two parts of the directive, and, appropriately, became a focal point for those critiquing the MCC. The MCC listed trauma-informed approach as a key term on its website. It says it is meant to minimize the potential for further harm and re-traumatization and to enforce sorry and to enhance safety control and resilience and then notes that this is why the MCC does not use the gunman's name 
Trauma-informed court procedures, or at least the conscious development of them, is a relatively new phenomenon in Canadian law and Western law generally. Trauma-informed as a term has not been judicially considered, though there are some law journal articles which discuss its applicability. Essentially, it is supposed to mean being aware of the specific ways in which people experience trauma and developing policies and practices which reflect this understanding. So, if a witness suffers from anxiety, being trauma-informed may mean allowing them to testify with a support person or from another room by closed-circuit video. It may also mean refraining from posting photos of deceased individuals, or at least, as was done in the Desmond Inquiry, from posting the photos to the live stream feed. If something said during a 911 call is relevant, but not the tone, then, the, then a transcript of the call may suffice, rather than playing the actual audio. Being trauma-informed can extend beyond a testifying witness. Prior to what might be anticipated to be tough evidence, there can be warnings given for members of the public and for court staff who may wish to leave the room. In the Desmond Inquiry, separate viewing rooms and victim services staff were also made available for family members. It is possible to have it is impossible to have any meaningful discussion about the deaths of 22 people without getting into difficult emotional territory. Being trauma-informed is not meant to be an excuse to avoid difficult subjects if they are relevant to the core issues to be examined. It does, however, mean trying to not exacerbate anybody's personal trauma experiences through specific tailored steps designed to protect the person while still allowing them to participate in a fulsome manner. As I will review below, when going through how the evidence of the, in the MCC was presented, the commissioners refused to state plainly up front what they meant by trauma-informed, which led to the participants, notably the National Police Federation, taking an extreme stance on what it then might mean. The MCC lawyers seemed to support these extreme interpretations, which would have seen either none or very few witnesses of any kind. The commissioners did not explicitly push back or clarify the definition, and the trauma-informed debate greatly affected and undercut the ability of the MCC to dig for answers. All right, that's it for the first part of uh, first few sections of part three of uh, deficits of trust. Thanks everybody for. Uh, listening thanks for watching and we'll bring you the uh, next uh, few sections uh, probably in a few days time look forward to joining you then i uh, hope everybody enjoys don't forget to like subscribe share these videos uh, if you think others would like to hear them as well and uh, thanks again we'll see you next time